This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today, my guest is Chris Kempshaw. Chris is the author of The History and Politics of Star Wars, published by Routledge in 2023. This book provides the first detailed and comprehensive examination of essentially all of the materials making up the Star Wars franchise, from its creation up to the contemporary, going through the sale of the George Lucas film to Disney in 2012. Drawing on a variety of sources, including films, published interviews with directors and actors, novels, comics, and even computer games, this book is an exploration into the historical and contemporary events that had been repurposed within Star Wars. The book focuses on key themes such as fascism and the Galactic Empire, the failures of democracy, the portrayal of warfare, the morality of the Jedi, and the representation of sex, gender, and race. So through these themes, the study highlights the impacts of the fall of the Soviet Union, the war on terror, and the failure of the United Nations upon the galaxy far, far away. But before we delve into all of this, Chris, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, yeah, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, now, let's start with your background, but I think more importantly for the listeners, with the origins of this book and the idea to link Star Wars to its historical context. So, um, I mean, my background up until kind of starting from my PhD, I'm a kind of a historian by trade and nominally really a First World War historian. But I did kind of, you know, a lot of media studies. My, my degree was in media studies and the like. Um, and my PhD thesis was in relations between British and French soldiers during the First World War. So, you know, quite a long way away from anything Star Wars related. But once I'd finished that, I started kind of taking the opportunity to kind of spread my slightly geeky wings um, so for, for, for a while, and it's kind of still a, a research sideline for me, 
I did some stuff on the portrayal of the First World War in computer games as a kind of a modern media interaction with kind of real world history. Um, and I did a book about that and I did not, a couple of articles about that. But one of the articles did really, really well because it got picked up by a YouTube channel called uh, The Great War, who some of the listeners may have heard of, um, who kind of did throughout the First World War centenary, kind of went through the war in, in, in real time. And they shared it with their you know, hundreds of thousands of followers and the metrics for it went through the roof. Um, and it set off little kind of like happy sirens at Taylor and Francis, which is owned by, um, by Routledge. Um, and their kind of commissioning editor got in contact with me and said, oh, this, you know, this has done really well. We should chat about other stuff that you might want to do. And I had that conversation. It was like, I would quite like to do a book about Star Wars and um, how Star Wars kind of uses... What I actually originally pitched was like a military history of the Star Wars universe. Um, but then the more I thought about it, I thought, that's firstly, that's probably not going to work. It's going to be super difficult. Also, far more likely to get sued um, by um, Disney Lucasfilm than, than, than other ideas. So then that turned into a how does Star Wars kind of repurpose real world events whether it's you know as far back as the romans or as kind of recent as whatever's going on in the world today i just want to alert everybody that i'm a fan of star trek i'm a trekkie that's great but i do deeply appreciate star wars and that's the reason why i really and probably enjoyed reading your book because i think there's also interesting parallels between the two completely different universe but sometimes some of the stories and themes are coming together through different routes, but definitely, you know, there's something out there that links the two uh, uh, franchises. Yeah, I mean, I don't know enough about Star Trek, but I would 100% read the history and politics of Star Trek. I will eat that up. Because, um, you know, I've watched a lot of Star Trek, but I, I, I'm not as kind of immersed in it as I am with, with Star Wars. But there's, there's, yeah, there's loads of crossovers and relevances between the two. So we're definitely going to talk about uh, war uh, speed and stuff like that. We leave it to, uh, <laughs> you know, the experts of this kind of uh, uh, tricks and, you know, in science. But I want to ask you something about the object of the book, Star Wars. Now, this is a very large universe. Yeah. Can you tell us something about Star Wars and also the question of the expanded universe, which is central to your book. Yeah, it is absolutely central to my book. So, I mean, for, I imagine for a lot of people, including the listeners, you know, when people think of Star Wars, they think of the films. It makes absolute perfect sense because that's where Star Wars, you know, is, is kind of envisaged. It's, the, you know, the most outreaching part of the, the franchise. Um, and, you know, it's the entry point for a lot of people. So you get... Certainly under George Lucas, you get the original trilogy, um, you know, A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. Then you get the the, the prequel films of Phantom Menace, um, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. And obviously now we've had the, the sequel films and other bits and pieces as well. So that's kind of like, you know, a big, important part of the Star Wars universe. But the way that Star Wars has worked, certainly since kind of the, the 1980s and definitely all the way through the 1990s to the present day, is films aren't actually the sole domain of Star Wars. And, and to an extent, they're not even the most kind of um, numerous aspect of it because there are hundreds of books and novels about Star Wars. There are loads of computer games about Star Wars. There are loads of graphic novels and comics about Star Wars. And all of them are licensed and kind of overseen by effectively a committee that's kind of employed for continuity control to make sure that they don't, kind of contradict too badly stuff that has already existed so it's not kind of like oh well you know in this film we saw mark hamill play um 
play um, Luke Skywalker. But in this graphic novel, you've written it as Danny DeVito playing uh, Luke Skywalker. And, you know, there's quite a there's quite a big difference between those actors. It's kind of to ensure like a level of continuity between it. But the idea behind it is that when you pick up a book, the Luke Skywalker you read in the book is the same Luke Skywalker as in the film, as is the same Luke Skywalker in the computer game, as in the same Luke Skywalker in the comic book. And it's supposed to be an overarching kind of narrative, cohesive thing, which means that you can take it all as a whole. You know, loads of Star Wars studies have started and ended with the films, which makes perfect sense again, because, you know, you don't have to, you just have to put a film on the TV and watch it. You don't have to go away and read 500 novels <laughs> to be able to make a, to make a critique of it. But it does mean that everything about Star Wars, or which has a Star Wars label on it, should be considered as part of a wider whole. And that's what I'm trying to do with a book. Now, before we talk about the chapters, I want to ask you something uh, sort of professional, shall we say, about historiography. Can yes. we talk about a Star Wars historiography? And also, perhaps you can tell us a, a little bit more about the body of literature that has been written about Star Wars, and also perhaps uh, the sources that you use for this book. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think we can talk about historiography of Star Wars. I mean, one of the, it's, this is a weird conceptual thing. Um, Star Wars fans are, are obsessed with the concept of canon, you know, C-A-N-O-N, um, on like religious grounds of, you know, what counts as Star Wars? What is official Star Wars? And for a while when I was planning this book, I kind of extended that religious metaphor out. So I was talking about, you know, the gospel of George Lucas, the gospel of Timothy Zahn, the gospel of Kevin J. Anderson, all of these various figures who have written aspects of the Star Wars universe and, you know, changed things in different ways, but conceived of it differently. So I definitely think you can talk about, you know, an evolving literary body of work within the Star Wars universe in the same way that you can talk about an evolving literary of work about the Star Wars universe, you know, studies like my book that are examining and, and kind of analysing it. But even within the Star Wars universe, there are key authors, there are key texts that are formative for everything that comes after them. So for my for my book, obviously, you know, I did the films and then in the planning stage, I was kind of looking at it and going, you know, there's a lot of books. There's a lot of stuff here. Now, fortunately, or, you know, unfortunately, as a, you know, fairly significant Star Wars fan, I had wasted quite a lot of my life already reading these books and already owned all of them. So in that sense, it was the easiest research project I've ever had in my life because it's not like, oh, God, I need that source. I'm going to have to get on a train to London. I need to book into the British Library. I'll just go upstairs and I'll take it off the bookshelf and it'll be fine. Um, so my thought process was actually the expanded universe, the novels, the games, the comics are so heavily under-researched as to that's one of the kind of now the key objectives of this book to create a cohesive understanding of the expanded universe in regards to, you know, the way that it interprets history, but also almost as like a, a blueprint for whoever wants to come and do something with the expanded universe later, because I don't know how realistic it is to ask a, a researcher to go, okay, you know, you want to do something new about Star Wars, you need to go away and spend 10 years reading Star Wars novels. It's just, it's not, re it's not a reasonable thing to ask somebody. It just isn't going to happen. But if you can provide like, okay, here is an oversight of the key plot points of the novels, of the games, of the comic books, which means if you only want to look at a bit of them, this is probably the bit that you want to look at. Um, and that's kind of like an underlying hope for the book that it's it can act as something that kind of 
rationalizes the expanded universe for whoever wants to use it next. Now, I want to move to uh, chapter one and talk about into uh, what in the inverted commas we may say the bad guys, because that's <laughs> what you're really talking about in, in chapter one is the galactic empire. Now, the empire feels very much uh, a fascist-like regime, right? Yeah. And, um, and I was wondering, who did George Lucas mean to criticize using this metaphor? How did, he, uh, how did early ideas actually evolve uh, over time uh, about the empire? Because obviously this is a, uh, you know, not a static concept. It changes throughout the decades and every movie uh, and story represent its own historical context. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, you know, George Lucas also envisions the, the Galactic Empire as a fascist organisation. George Lucas has a slightly odd concept of fascism, though. He has, um, like he, he envisages fascism as something that, you know, a fascist is something that you are rather than something that you do. Um, so, you know, if you're a bad guy, you become automatically a fascist because fascists are bad guys and you're a bad guy, so you're a fascist. Rather than actually to be a fascist, you, you know, there's an ideology behind that, you know there are certain actions, there are certain things that you will do or you will believe. And those don't entirely come out in those original trilogy. But George Lucas specifically envisages or envisions the Galactic Empire as a vision of a fallen United States that is degraded and compromised by its involvement in the Vietnam War. So the original Star Wars, you know, A New Hope is an anti-American Vietnam film and is conceived as such from the earliest possible drafts. You know, in the in the earliest drafts that George Lucas is writing, he um, he, he name checks the United States specifically in regards to the kind of concepts that he's trying to do and um, the ideas that he's trying to get across, which he's borrowing from his work on the film Apocalypse Now, which is stuck in development hell um, at this point. Um now, what that means with offshoots is that, um, firstly, the audience don't get that. Um, the audience view it as, you know, partly a, you know, a, a Buck Rogers sci-fi space pew-pew film. Um, but also, they don't get the anti-American aspect particularly. They, you know, understandably, they go, okay, you're talking about fascists and bad guys, you're talking about Nazi Germany, or if you're talking about bad guys who are authoritarian, you're talking about the Soviet Union. And those aren't actually really the, the targets that George Lucas is aiming at. Um, as the trilogy expands and kind of goes forward, he never really kind of properly gets into the, you know, the fascist ideology of the empire. You know, it's not like, you know, it halfway through an empire strikes back, it stops to have a discussion of the political manifesto of Darth Vader and his many men and his merry men. Um, but George Lucas has pretty clear ideas of who he wants certain people to represent. And the kind of the, the, the key interesting one is obviously the Emperor. Now, the Emperor only appears in Return of the Jedi. We know nothing about him. He's mentioned once in A New Hope. He appears in Hologram in uh, Empire Strikes Back, but he's just kind of like old, scary. Oh, the son of Skywalker has arrived. We should probably do something about that. Off you go, Darth. That kind of level of there's no there's no exposition. There's no backstory behind him. And we don't really learn anything about him in Return of the Jedi either. Um, but in George Lucas's mind, he is Richard Nixon, um, specifically Richard Nixon. Um, and, you know, when production is working on um, Return of the Jedi, George Lucas goes, ah, yes, the emperor. Let me tell you about the emperor. Um, once upon a time, he was a politician named Richard Nixon. Um, and he views kind of Nixon as like the ultimate 
figurehead of a democracy about to collapse as a figure who's going to suspend democracy, cling to power, you know, entirely immoral. Um, you know, I don't necessarily, you know, necessarily know how well that ties up. I mean, we could say loads about Richard Nixon. I reckon if he could shoot lightning from his hands, he would have stayed in power for a lot longer. Um, but that's George Lucas's kind of interpretation of history, which then leaves Darth Vader dangling in a very weird space because everybody looks at Darth Vader and goes, oh, you're the bad guy. You're the big evil, the most evil man in the galaxy. But Darth Vader works for the Emperor. <laughs> you know, he, he, he's the hired help. Um, and loads of kind of people in the production staff and even the cast of um, Star Wars, you know, refer to him as if he was Adolf Hitler. Um, as a kind of, you know, he's a key Nazi figure. But again, Darth Vader doesn't have any of Hitler's ideology. He doesn't, he certainly doesn't have Hitler's charisma or ability to, you know, motivate people or tell a speech or anything like that. Darth Vader exists as a bad guy who has power. So then the, the, the kind of the automatic leap to bad guy who has power, who is evil. Oh, it's Adolf Hitler. But then that starts to break down when the emperor arrives, because it's not like Adolf Hitler was working for someone, um, you know, being evil on the side while his boss was off doing other things. Palpatine should be the should be Adolf Hitler, but Palpatine is Richard Nixon, and Darth Vader is somewhere in between. Which brings me to the question of uh, who are Darth Vader and the Emperor in reality? Because obviously, we, we you know those who watch the movies have a sense of you know Darth Vader, this kind of like very dark figure, and yeah. the Emperor who's kind of an hologram most of the times, and you can't really understand who is really this individual. Uh, but there's more behind just these two characters. Yes. Um, so Palpatine um, is probably the most interesting character in certainly the Star Wars films and the kind of the wider franchise. And, you know, because of the nature of Star Wars, um, he is what's known as a Sith Lord. So he's a, an evil force user. And he starts off as a simple, mild-mannered politician who rises to power through basically manipulation of events and... Um, kind of manufactured crises to basically become supreme chancellor of the galaxy with unlimited elements of power, um, stays in office long after his kind of democratic terms have expired because there's a war on and you can't change the leader during the war. He's basically, in that sense, becomes um, a placeholder for Hitler um, in given kind of like the, the Reichstag fire in um, 1933. He's a figurehead for Napoleon with the kind of suspension of the French Republic, similar with Julius Caesar. So he's kind of like an amalgamation of kind of various historical figures who kind of seize control of democracy, not through launching a coup, but basically by kind of manipulating events to the point where democracy is just given to him. It's like, oh, you know, this is a crisis. You're the guy to fix it. Hey, have all of this power. I'm sure you'll give it back. And, you know, then he goes cackling off into the night. Um, Darth Vader as a character is kind of slightly more complex than um, Palpatine in, very, in many ways because he is a fallen Jedi um previously known as Anakin Skywalker, who kind of gives up all the of his goodness and his belief in the light side of the force and, and the like in exchange for power. Um, you know, he, he is a fallen Jedi. Um, so in that kind of, kind of sense, he's a slightly more kind of Lucifer-esque figure of a kind of like a fallen angel, whereas the um, 
whereas the emperor is kind of purely evil and has always been kind of planning on being evil you know he, he made his choice early on and he's super happy with it um whereas you know anakin could have been so much more um and um then kind of gets his arms and legs cut off and he gets set on fire for a while and ends up kind of encased in this in this black armor as kind of like the emperor's henchman um and that's kind of his his role to kind of go around being pretty awful to people so the emperor doesn't have to um but yeah in in their own ways particularly the emperor you know as a as an expression of a view of democracy which i imagine we'll end up talking about um further shortly um you know the concept and the and the backstory and the way that he comes to power changes through the films and through the books and the like to reflect what's going on in the world and that's particularly true of things in the war during the 9-11 and the war on terror um as a kind of a he also becomes slightly george w bush-esque let me bring you back to the question of the expanded universe. So you, you are talking about an evolving vision of empire, which you, you just mentioned. Basically, it's like moving from Nixon to George Bush. We can see that uh, evolution. Can you speak a little bit more about this? And can you also tell us what happened, particularly after Disney purchased the Lucasfilm in 2012? Yeah. So with uh, the empire, you know, what you see is what you get for the Empire on, on the cinema screen. You know, it exists from A New Hope to Return of the Jedi. Death Star blows up, Emperor dies, Darth Vader dies, presumably that's it. Um, and then, you know, that's in 1983, the films are over. You then enter a period of time where there isn't really a great deal of Star Wars. And the expanded universe comes to life um, at the beginning of the 1990s, in kind of 1990, um, some of the planning in 1989 and, and books being released in 1991. And what you see is... A reconcept or reconception of the empire based on what's going on in the world. So obviously, you know, 1991, you've had, you know, the Soviet Union has collapsed. Berlin Wall is down. You're in a post-Soviet world. You're in a post-Cold War world. America's the last remaining superpower. And the empire that begins to appear in this time period matches on to a fair number of kind of anxieties that America has during the 1990s about being the last supervisor, superpower in a, in a post-Soviet world. So <clears throat> what's interesting is that you get films during the 1990s, and I'm thinking films like um, Crimson Tide, um, Air Force One, um, you know, various Tom Clancy films get made in the 1990s, and they're all on some level about... <clears throat> Oh no, in Russia, like super ideological um, ultra nationalists have taken control of these super weapons, these weapons of mass destruction. They've got they've got nukes and they're going to use them on us. And this is terrifying because they're not, you know, they're not a nation state and they're in control. And what do we do about it? And what's super interesting about that, that concept that you see in Hollywood is it's happening in the Star Wars universe in the books at the same time, but slightly earlier because publishing works quicker than making films. Um, so you get books that are like, oh, no, these super ideological, ultra nationalist, ex-imperial military folk have got these massive weapons that they can use to blow up planets. And they're like, what do we do about that? It's not like we can fight them because they're not a nation state anymore. It's just a bunch of warlords left floating around in the world. And you get this kind of post-Cold War anxiety in the 1990s about the empire that goes up into kind of 97, 98 time when in the books, the, the, the new Republic, which is the government that emerges from the rebel Alliance, make peace with the galactic empire and kind of become allies with them in that. If you think about kind of around 
had no Kosovo and certainly around 9-11, you get that feeling that for a time it might be possible for America and Russia to work together. You know, maybe they've got a shared enemy. There's a sense that, you know, Putin's not a nice guy, but to, you know, quote a thing about Mussolini, he might be a man that you can do business with. Um, and you get that, you know, ex-imperial admirals who might not necessarily be nice guys, but you can do business with them. You know, if there's a shared enemy, you can you can work with them. Um, and that's a really kind of interesting arc during the 1990s. You get kind of twists on it during the 2000s, particularly during the war on terror, where the, 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 the New Republic and the Empire work very closely together to fight exterior threats, which are kind of semi-placeholders for terrorism. But once Disney buys Lucasfilm, what you get is all of the expanded universe stuff is basically decanonized because it's cluttered. There's no space for Disney to make any of their own material. You can't kind of go, okay, fantastic. We're going to release a new Star Wars trilogy of films. It's going to be brilliant. And we found this single weekend in amongst 500 book plots where there's nothing been said and nobody's doing anything. So we'll set our films in that 24 hour period and everybody will love it. It's, uh, you, you can't do it. It's too, it's too cluttered. There's too much, there's too much baggage. So they reimagine the whole galaxy after Return of the Jedi. And what you end up with is a much more Nazi-focused galactic empire um, and offshoots very, very heavy Nazi symbiology, um, very clear Nazi ideology. And again, you actually start seeing the ideology of the empire coming out in film in ways that had never existed before. And they kind of redraw the, the, the galactic history into something certainly between Return of the Jedi and the film um, The Force Awakens, that looks very, very much the, like the appeasement period between the two world wars, where you're left with this kind of rump state of imperials who are super ideological and are building weapons and the like, and you've got this republic that's like, yeah, we don't want to go to war, we'll just you know, make a few concessions here and there and everything will work out just fine, and then obviously it doesn't work out fine because you know, fascists rise up and declare war and then awful horrible things start happening. But that in itself is a is an interesting kind of reuse of history to kind of make a, make a point that echoes with events that the audience might recognise and understand that, you know, what is happening in the Star Wars universe is not alien to what's happened in the real world universe it is a reimagining of what it looks like when you win a war against fascists but the fascists don't go away i just want to ask you something that is not really in the book but uh while you were talking about it i, I was thinking uh, in relation to disney uh purchasing the, the franchise do you have a sense of how fans reacted to this transition from george lucas own franchise to uh, uh disney it's a really interesting one because there is a subset of Star Wars fans who are very vociferous, but I don't believe that they're in the majority, but they are very loud, who effectively believe that to be a good Star Wars fan, you have to hate Star Wars. Um, anything new comes out, you've kind of got to really dislike it. Um, and George Lucas makes the, the, the prequels. I'm sure you can you know, remember the time when the prequels came out. They are not universally beloved in the time period. A lot of people have problems with them. A lot of people complain about some of the characters and the acting and the script and the like. And, you know, the prequels become a little bit of a punchline. And George Lucas says, you know, in a period after that, he's got no intention of going back and making any more Star Wars. Why would I? Every time I make a new film, everybody tells me how much they hate it. And, you know, it's a fair point. Who needs that in their lives? Um, so when Disney buy Lucasfilm and they announce, you know, we have taken control of Lucasfilm, there is going to be new Star Wars. I think there's an element of excitement because, oh, fantastic, I like Star Wars. I, I would like some more Star Wars, please. 
you get some people who are like, oh, fantastic. You know, it's not going to be done by George Lucas, therefore it'll be good. And then you've got other people who are like, oh, no, I don't know if I want Disney to make more Star Wars stuff. So you've kind of got a mix of uncertainty and, and excitement that kind of exists within and a kind of a wait and see what this looks like um, thing. Because, you know, there's been rumors circulating for years and years and years that, you know, Lucas is going to come back. There's going to be more films and like it never really panned out. Um so I think, you know, there is varying degrees of cautious excitement in the lead up to it. Um, what I find really interesting is so Lucasfilm spent like four point five billion dollars or some some utterly mad amount of money on on buying Lucasfilm when they released the first trailer for The Force Awakens, a trailer which lasts for about 40 seconds, something like that. It put that amount of money back on their share price. They remade all of the money that they'd spent on Star Wars with 40 seconds of material. So there's an element of they could have just cashed out. Uh, just going, ah, you know, that made our money back and some more. So actually, it was just a whole, it was a, it was a big trick. We're not going to make any more Star Wars, but we're very delighted to be richer than we were beforehand. But I think the fact that the trailer did that much is an indication of how excited people were getting in the lead up to The Force Awakens. Let me take you to... Uh the next chapter of the book. And uh, this is the chapter we are essentially talking about uh, uh, the good guys. So opposite to the empire, uh, you have the uh, republic, which we may call the representation of democracy, right? Uh, and you mentioned, you know, this democracy is essentially is under threat, whether from Nixon first and then later by others. So the republic or democracy is uh, threatened by external enemies, right? and also by internal critics. So the Republic is barely mentioned in the original trilogy of films. Again, similar to The Emperor, it just doesn't exist. It's a thing that used to exist and is gone now. You get a lot more of it in the prequel films. But there is one consistent vision of the Republic and democracy that exists all across George Lucas's film work and all the way through the expanded universe, novels and books and comics and all that stuff. And effectively, it is that Democracy is rubbish and doesn't work. Um, it's a super cynical view of it, um, that it is always ripe for collapse. It is always ripe for takeover by fascists. The politicians are corrupt or bureaucratic or trapped in a system that doesn't actually allow them to act. You never see who the voters are or if there are actually elections. It's it's super unclear if anyone's getting elected in um a Star Wars universe. You know, it's not like there's like prolonged manifestos and political campaigns and then clear voting days and the like there is no real easy way to find out how any of these people have ended up in these positions. So you end up with this super weird vision of democracy of, you know, democracy is precious, it's pure, we must protect it at all costs, but good God, it's rubbish. And actually, you know, it's only ever 15 minutes away from being overthrown by, you know, some lunatic fascist and and and, and, his, and his pals. Um which is a really difficult juxtaposition of, of concepts. You know, how can something be so good and be so rubbish at the same time? Um, I mean, you know, we're recording this in, in January 2023. I think there's probably good cause over the last few years for all of us to look at democracy and go, God, this could be better. Um, you know, this this could be working a little bit a little bit better for everybody. But even even with that kind of, oh, God, this you know, rise of authoritarianism, rise of fascism in our own lives, and the like, is still not as cynical a view of fascism or and democracy as George Lucas is conjuring up in the 1970s and the 1980s 
and a bunch of authors are conjuring up in the 1990s. So, yeah, it's like a it's it's an ongoing effective trope that democracy doesn't work in Star Wars and it never does. And there's no easy, clear way of making it work. Um, but it is apparently the most important thing. And yet, you know, fragile as a bubble. I want to ask you something about uh, democracy in terms of like uh, how did Lucas saw democracy and how the concept of democracy changed for Lucas throughout time. And I'm also curious about uh, the representation of democracy throughout the series and its changes. And again, I want to link to what you just said earlier about uh, the empire. You talked about that after the Disney takeover, the empire was essentially, uh, you know, underwent the process of Nazification, shall yeah. we say. So what happened to the Republic? How did the Republic change uh, you know, and the concept of democracy underlining the republic uh, under Disney. So the kind of the, the the foundational belief that George Lucas has about democracy is that democracies fall not through violence, but through kind of passive giving away. Um, you know, democracies are presented to dictators. Dictators do not seize power. Um, and he draws on, you know, again, f- um, Napoleon and the, and the French Republic, Julius Caesar, Adolf Hitler, and the like, and that democracies are vulnerable to being captured and manipulated by outside events. So again, you know, Hitler and the Reichstag fire, um, George W. Bush and the war on terror, um, and 9-11 to kind of bring in things like the Department for Homeland Security and you know, the invasion of Iraq and the like to kind of twist things. Um, that belief from him stays pretty solid. It's a, it's a fairly kind of consistent one, which... You know, you can say a lot about George Lucas. He isn't always consistent about what George Lucas is thinking. George Lucas may not be the best source of information on what George Lucas believes about anything. Um, But that kind of belief then feeds into the way that the expanded universe works. So again, you see it being reproduced This kind of an outside crisis happens. The Republic struggles to deal with it, you know, act, you know, key protagonist actors have to go off and do the stuff because the government isn't capable of doing it. Now, some of that's probably a a narrative necessity. No one's buying a science fiction book of, oh no, an existential crisis has appeared on the horizon, but don't worry, the government's put a committee in place, they've costed it, they've decided on what their best course of action is. They've put it to a vote and now it's fine. Um, Because, God, that's boring as hell. Um, There's no no excitement in that at all. Um, But what you get with post-Disney is, again, a reframing of the Republic to an extent so it looks a little bit like Britain, France and America to an extent after the First World War. It's that we fought a war, we're super tired, we are super lax at maintaining the status quo that we have now created with a defeated enemy, and we're just going to try and coast through this um, and appease where 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 necessary and so again that you get that reimagining of the galactic empire along nazi lines and you get the reimagining of the republic along kind of 1920s 1930s lines as uh, a government that is unwilling to impose the rules that it had already decided upon um you know in regards to rearmament and the like it becomes a cautionary tale in its own way let me move to chapter three, which is about warfare. Yes. And warfare, obviously, is central to the movies. I mean, that's part it's of the action, right? It's the title. <laughs> yeah. So 
I want to ask you something about the nature of warfare in Star Wars, and particularly how did George Lucas understand and represent it? And also, you introduced the question of uh, asymmetric warfare, which is very important. I'm, I'm thinking about a number of uh, contemporary conflicts which are defined as asymmetric. And so I was wondering if you can also put that into perspective. Yeah. So George Lucas's kind of starting point in concepts of war is the Vietnam War. Um, and he views it very much as a, as a fight between good and evil, with the Viet Cong being good and the United States of America being evil, effectively. And again, it's an asymmetric conflict. You know, the United States has all of this military technology. Um, it's got all of this kind of weaponry and money and military infrastructure. And the Viet Cong do not. But the lesson he takes from it is that uh, a kind of an ideologically motivated insurgency can and will beat a technologically superior enemy because of morale and kind of the the ideological purity of the cause, effectively. And he also kind of makes references to that same thing being true of the American Revolution, you know, of uh, an insurgency from the United States against the military superpower of, of Britain at the time. Um, there are issues with this. Um, again, it's similar to the fact, the way that, you know, of George Lucas conceives of fascism. He kind of conceives of the Rebel Alliance, who are, you know, the Viet Cong placeholders of this, as being almost without ideology in their own way. It's not entirely clear what the Rebel Alliance are trying to do, except overthrow the empire, and then apparently things will get better. And similarly to what we've kind of some of the points we've talked on earlier, you know, if you could say anything about the Viet Cong, they're very clear about what it is that they want to do and what they want to replace the, the system of government with. Um, it's not an ideologically neutral position that the Viet Cong are taking on the warfare against um, South Vietnam and the United States of America. They are very clear on their objectives. Um, so it's not a super brilliant kind of comparison. There's also a tendency for George Lucas to look at these asymmetric warfares as kind of like effectively as being noble savages to an extent of, um, you know, they're, they're low tech, they're barbaric in their own ways, but they have purity of heart and that's what's going to carry them to victory over, over the evil enemy. Now, again, the, the, the concept of the noble savage is a very racially, imperially, colonially loaded concept. And, you know, fine, you're saying that they're noble, but you're also calling them savages. And that's not a, that's not a neutral term to, to, to be used. But it's kind of the, the vision that George Lucas has of this type of warfare, that um, whilst it's asymmetric, the, the, the point that he you know, keeps trying to get across is that military technology will only get you so far. And if you're fighting it in, in a not conventional warfare, then a lot of it's pretty useless. You know, he designs the 80, 80 walkers on that march around on Hoth in um, The Empire Strikes Back as a critique of the of the American military of, you know, look at this stupidly over-engineered weapon that is so enormous and clearly technologically powerful, but so utterly limited in the environments in which you can use it and its military usefulness. So it could be tripped up with a wire tied around its legs. You know, it's a, it's a critique of the military-industrial complex who are always looking to build the bigger, badder bomb. Um and that's kind of how he how he views it. Um, and that kind of vision of the empire as a super technologically advanced 
but not particularly well suited to actually fighting the wars that it's fighting carries on right throughout the expanded universe to the point it effectively becomes a trope that the idea that the empire is always working on another super weapon always another bigger badder bomb there's always going to be another enormous gun that can blow up two planets this time or an entire solar system or or something they're always working on the next evil scheme but they don't work because they never work that's that's kind of the point of you know big bad bombs is that they've always got this kind of critical flaw in them that the that the designers have overlooked i have a question that just popped out of the blue because obviously you're an expert on world war one yeah uh, myself too but i obviously work on the middle eastern front you're working on the western front uh, what those military strategies suggested in the various movies actually work out or do you think that they're just work of fiction and they don't really match any sort of a military training or understanding? So one of the weird parts about the book that we're talking about today is that it gave me an opportunity. I got contacted by a, by a publisher working on a licensed Star Wars book by Lucasfilm to about it was called battles that changed the galaxy it's basically a military history book about star wars battles and they asked me if i wanted to help them write it and it turns out i really really did want to help them write it um and the thing you have to take about you know the star wars battles that you see on screen is that they are framed for cinematic purposes obviously you know you want to get all of the fighters on the screen at the same time which is why despite all sides having guns they run at each other as quickly as is humanly possible because then you can have them both on the screen shooting each other rather than cutting from one side of a battlefield to the other there are elements within star wars battles that would stand up to kind of you know a, a recognizable strategy you know dog fights make sense to an extent i mean if you ignore the, the issues with physics and explosions in in space you know fighters going after fighters other fighters going after bombers and the like does make you know uh, you know you could see exactly the same thing happening in say the battle of britain for example um you see the rebels in various films make dig trenches as defensive positions um and the Empire, you know, trying to march heavy weapons over the top of them. Again, I could recognise some of that from First World War. Things involving tanks and digging trenches and the like. Um, there's a fair amount of stuff in there that you just go, I don't know any logical military figure who would have decided this was a good idea. But then... I could look at loads of battles through history and go, I don't know why any military figure thought this was a good idea. Um, you know, the battles and military history is replete with people who quite clearly have picked the wrong option in a battle and it goes horribly. So, you know, if it can happen in the real world, there's no reason why it shouldn't happen for a, for a guy in, in space pew pew land. I just have a couple more questions about warfare because, as I said, it's central to the movie and I think it's very important to unpack. Now, you mentioned the uh, rebels. So if I think about Princess Leia, I really think about rebellion. Yes. Can you talk about the ethic and moral implication of warfare, regardless of its nature as rebellion, defense, or conquest and destruction? Because, again, warfare is central to the entire franchise. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. And Princess Leia is a super interesting figure. She is probably the, the the rebel who has ideology. You know, she isn't just a rebel, she's a revolutionary as well. You know, she is clearly trying to overthrow a fascism, replace it with a, a dictatorship that works for the for the people. And she's kind of like the the moral and political heart of the rebellion, certainly on screen and through a lot of the and through a lot of the books. Um and what she is you know, kind of in embodying and attempting to change is the the idea of, you know, government that works for people, but also that 
you know, that again, that's like narrative time that sometimes what's needed to fix a situation is for some people to get in a spaceship and go blow something up. And she kind of, she plays to both sides of the, both sides of the streets in that, in that aspect in that she's, you know, she's keen to, to get involved, but she will also, you know, sit down and, and discuss, um, discuss scuff over like a, a, like a conference table and the like. When it comes to the ethical aspects of it, I mean, the rebellion on certainly in the original trilogy and a lot of the books is a very clean rebellion. You know, they're not, sh- you know, sticking bombs under people's cars and not picking people off, uh, giving speeches and the like. It's a, it's a rebellion that is very clear in what it believes its its rules of engagement are, which is, you know, shoot stormtroopers, blow up military tech, we definitely don't kill civilians and we don't disrupt things too, too badly. Um, which, you know, is a very interesting way of looking at a rebellion, you know, against a fascistic thing that, you know, there are clearly delineated lines that we will not cross. Um, That has changed since Disney took over Lucasfilm. It's become a murkier, dirtier rebellion. I mean, if any of the listeners have have seen Rogue One or the recent series about um, Cassian Andor, the first time we meet Andor in Rogue One, he just shoots a guy in in an alleyway who's a rebel informant, but Andor's like only one of us is getting out of this thing before the stormtroopers arrive, your liability. So I'm pretty sure it's going to be me. And he just, just murders him. Um, and there's loads of um, kind of rebel fighters in there who are referred to have done doing awful things for the rebellion, you know, assassinations, bombings, sabotage, kidnapping. Um, the character of Saw Gerrera, who's played by Forrest Whitaker is um, basically um exiled from the rebellion for being too extreme um his followers use suicide bombs um they target civilians if they have links to uh, imperial kind of infrastructure and the like and this idea that actually to fight an enemy like the empire there's there's a there's a tv show called rebels which is like an animated show normally for kids i'm not convinced it's a kid's show um and Saw Guerrero appears in it and he has this conversation with Mon Mothma, who's the leader of the Rebel Alliance. And he tells her that if you continue to fight this war on the Empire's terms, you are going to lose. The idea that actually the only way this war can be fought is an unlimited war um, because it's existential. Either we defeat the Empire or the Empire defeats us and everything's over. You know, all forms of resistance, democracy, any of the good stuff that we want is gone. So the only way we can do this is if we do it. Um, and you get elements of that in Andor, the recent TV show as well, about actually you can't you can't be unwilling, you can't be reluctant, you can't hold back in fighting the Empire because the Empire won't. Let me move to Chapter 4, which I must confess uh, is my favourite. Chapter 4 is about the Force, the Jedi Order, and to an extent also religion. And I just wanted to ask you if you can give us a sense uh, of who they represent, who are the Force, who are the Jedi. Yes. So George Lucas conceives of the Jedi as kind of being peacekeepers, kind of warrior monks. They're mystics. They've got this use of the Force. They don't go out and, you know, rough people up and slap the cuffs on them necessarily. They're kind of diplomats who can, if you do something wrong, will drag you before the Senate. You know, they, they can handle themselves, but they're not supposed to be soldiers. And the point that is made through the prequel films, through a conflict called the Clone Wars, is that the Jedi get corrupted. They get turned into something they're not supposed to be, which is soldiers. They get turned into generals. They get turned into warriors. And it erodes their morality and allows them to be destroyed um, because they step away from the pure path that they're supposed to be on. 
But what's interesting further about the Jedi is that they're held up as these kind of oracles of goodness and truth and the like. But the first time we meet one of the characters in the prequel films, or kind of uh, Qui-Gon Jinn, um, who's, you know, held up as this great Jedi, and he goes to Tatooine with Obi-Wan Kenobi, and they meet Anakin Skywalker and his mum. Both of them are slaves. And Tatooine isn't in the Republic. It's not kind of kind of subject to its laws. And Qui-Gon kind of goes, ah, you know, I understand that you're slaves, but I wasn't sent here to, to free slaves. And then they just kind of leave. They go, you know, yeah, slavery is clearly bad, but if only there was something that I, a man who had the power of magic and was a pure moral heart, could do about this institution. Guess I'll just go home then. And there's a kind of a real issue within the Jedi that actually they might not be particularly good. They're very kind of enclosed and are a tool of the state. So what you can probably look at in regards to the Jedi as a comparison is probably UN peacekeepers. And they certainly get used in that comparison during the 1990s in regards to, you know, genocide at Srebrenica and genocide at Rwanda. As, you know, UN peacekeepers kind of stand back and watch because they haven't been told to do anything about it. You know, they have a mandate, you know, don't get involved, don't do X, Y and Z. And if A, B and C happens and you can do a thing, but then A, B and C doesn't happen. They're not told to do something, but X, Y and Z is definitely happening and they don't get involved. And you get various moments throughout the 1990s and again through the 2000s where the Jedi are critiqued for just standing back and watching bad stuff happen because they haven't been told to do anything. And if your morality stops at the water's edge and you have to be told to intervene, then how good as an organisation are you? Because it kind of sounds like you suck, really. If you just stand by and watch genocide happen, but you do it with pure of heart, then... Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sold on on how good you guys are. It feels like uh, the Jedi are a very hypocritical order, if I may say so. And, and I was wondering if you can tell us something about the fact that the Jedi are obviously not perfect, hence the dark side of the Force. Yes. So yeah, the Jedi are definitely not perfect, and they do have um, flaws in them, and. The dark side of the force is, is is conceived as something that is far more selfish. You know, it is a route to power. Jedi use the force for good. Um, the the Sith use the dark side to empower themselves, to seize power, to do various awful, terrible things. Um, and certainly through various points, the, the the Sith critique the Jedi for their hypocrisy and for their um, and for the way that they kind of go about their business and the times that they're not getting involved and times they do get involved there's a there's a line from um the clone wars period where a sith lord called count dooku um critiques the jedi saying that they can't do anything for slaves but they can do something for slave owners um and it's that kind of structural critique that actually you know the, the sith aren't pretending to be good but they have recognized that the jedi's hypocrisy is alienating people and it can be played upon um and as a result, you know, this helps empower the, the Sith to do the things that they want to do. There isn't a direct historical comparison for the Sith. Again, it's, it's kind of tied up in the Nazi stuff with the Empire and that the Empire and the Sith are largely kind of um, undivided in that sense. You know, the Sith are the Empire, the Empire is the Sith. Let me take you to uh, chapter five, the final one. This is a chapter that uh, is about... Uh, the people of Star Wars, and it's yes. about gender, race, ethnicity, and etc. All of these kind of uh, uh, feature and criteria. How did the representation of alien 
is actually an image of the contemporary reality. And perhaps yeah. you can also tell us something about the question of the actors, which we saw it changed uh, and in a sense mirrored society from mostly white to actually including people of colors, brown, Asians, and obviously also talking about question of gender and uh, LGBT, for instance. Yes. So, I mean, you know, it's been an ongoing joke certainly in regards to the original trilogy, that it appears that in a galaxy far, far away, there is a single woman and one black man. Um, and everybody else is a white guy um, in regards to, you know, Princess Leia and, and Lando Calrissian. Um, and that is kind of a, a representational issue on the on, on the screen straight away. Um, the way that Star Wars has used aliens is quite interesting because there's there's a concept within kind of fandom and and science fiction media called the planet of the hats which is that um a single individual of a species comes to represent the entirety of that species so in star wars in the first um in the first film han solo meets in a bar a bounty hunter called greedo who's a rodian and he shoots and kills him um but from that now Every Rodian in the galaxy is a bounty hunter. They, you know, it becomes a monoculture, and it's the same with huts. It's the same with Wookies. You know, there is no diversity in, you know, it's not like you know some of the Rodians are plumbers. Uh, you know, one of them's a football player. One of them's a pilot. You know, all of them. You know, sorry, it's bounty hunter or nothing. And that's interesting because that also mirrors the way that over the years Hollywood has treated, kind of non-white cultures you know white american is allowed to be as diverse as as necessary but you know you have black culture or you have asian culture or you have indian culture and everybody acts the same way it's, it becomes a monoculture in its own so that aspect of aliens is is reproducing that view of you know one size fits all um aspect for it. you know only in Star Wars, only humans are allowed to be diverse every other creature in the galaxy it doesn't matter if there are uh, you know, a 500-year-old Rodian or a 10-year-old Rodian. They're both going to be bounty hunters. Um, with the the increasing diversity on screen, you know, it's important to say a lot of people have reacted very well to it. You know, it's basically like it's about time that we started seeing, you know, more than one woman, more than one black actor, more than one black character, you know, gay characters, um, potentially trans characters and the like. It's it's still not there on screen at all. Um, and, you know, there was a lesbian kiss in um, The Rise of Skywalker that was very much blink and you miss it. It was two background characters um, uh, at the end of at the film's denouement. So there's still a reluctance to put some of this stuff on the screen, on the pages of books and the like, it's been going better. Um, but there has also been, you know, similar to people who, you know, think that to be a Star Wars fan, you have to hate Star Wars have taken a position that Star Wars is supposed to be ahistorical. Stop putting history and politics in my Star Wars is an ongoing, you know, you don't have to look that far on Twitter and the like to see, you know, stop making Star Wars political. I mean, that figure, that sentence alone is ridiculous because you need to have a conversation with George Lucas because he's been super clear from day one that Star Wars is historical and political. But effectively what these people mean from it is stop doing things that do not centre white heterosexual culture um you know stop putting black people in my star wars stop putting women in my star wars stop making them heroes stop make, putting gay people in my star wars stop diverging from what i believe is the status quo of culture and of star wars and those people are loud 
and they know how to kick up a fuss and they know how to grab attention and the like. And it's it's a problem because, you know, studios and developers can get afraid of riling those people because, you know, you start thinking there are more of them than there are and they're going to do X, Y, you know, they're going to boycott, they're going to cause us problems and the like. The publishing wing has been far more willing of Lucasfilm to just put stuff out. Again, probably not as quickly as people might want it to and that's something that needs to kind of be pushed ahead with. But I think the film aspect of it is still frightened of those people to an extent. And yeah, it's, it's, it's not cool because, you know, I've never had any problem imagining myself being a star Wars character. You know, there were half a dozen characters just in the original trilogy who I could pretend to be on any given day of the week. But then you go to something like star Wars celebration and you see, you know, young girls dressed up as Ray or, um, you know, uh, men and women of colour dressed up as, you know, their favourite characters and the like, and think, why shouldn't why shouldn't they be able to do, to be be the Star Wars they want to see in the world? Um, and, you know, if that upsets people who think that Star Wars is supposed to be, a, you know, completely ahistorical, well, there's various ways to dress it up, but they, you're just wrong. You're just wrong. Star Wars was never supposed to be apol- apolitical or ahistorical, and by insisting that it is, you're wrong. And by trying to limit other people's reactions and interactions with it, you're unpleasant. And I don't see why we should have to listen to you. One last question, which is very much about the future. So Star Wars is an ongoing story, right? Where do you think is directed? I think that Star Wars is going to keep gathering up from the real world because it always has. Um, and there's a tendency to say... Um, like the war on terror is a thing of the past. You know, the war on terror, as you know from the book, comes up over and over and over again from kind of post-2001 Star Wars, even up into the Disney stuff. It will continue to be a source of ongoing inspiration and material for Star Wars because the war on terror hasn't finished. You know, it is still a thing that's going on in the world. Um, I think the presidency of Donald Trump will continue to be adapted. Um, You know, the the creators of Andor were fairly explicit in interviews saying, you know, this is drawn up, you know, drawing on stuff that happened under Trump in in America. I wouldn't be surprised if the invasion of Ukraine um, by Russia becomes an ongoing source of material because it's something that can be transposed into a a galaxy far, far away. Um, So I think stuff like that will keep being a draw, keep providing an opportunity for Star Wars to comment about stuff that's going on in the real world. And, you know, the old classics, Vietnam isn't going to go anywhere. That'll keep being a source of of, of ongoing material because Star Wars is founded on the Vietnam War. And, you know, there's always going to be more stuff that you can draw on from that. But yeah, that kind of immediate stuff, I think, will will start to appear in Star Wars films and books and TV shows pretty quickly, I think. And from a galaxy not that far away, this was uh, Chris Kempshaw, author of The History and Politics of Star Wars, Death Stars and Democracy, published by Rutledge in 2023. Chris, thank you so much. Roberto, thank you very much indeed for having me, and I hope that people enjoy the book. If you enjoyed this episode and you're curious about the book... You can find a 25% discount code available on the podcast note. You can redeem the discount just browsing the Routledge website and enter the code.